friends. Welcome to RUF. Uh, we're continuing. We're doing a series in John. And we're in John chapter 7 tonight. And I want to look at John 7, verses 37 to 44. And we're thinking about um, that Jesus, of all the things that we look to in this world to satisfy us, that Jesus is the only one that does. And Jesus, in this passage, he says something really radical where he basically says that. He says, everyone who's thirsty, everyone who thirsts, if they want that thirst quenched, they can find that thirst quenched in him and what he does on our behalf in his life and death and resurrection. So John seven thirty-seven to 44 is what we're looking at. It's in your handout. Here's what John writes that Jesus said. On the day of, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet... My phone's messing up. We're going to roll with it. For as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, this is, the, is, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Let me pray for us. I want to dive into this passage a little bit tonight. Let's pray first. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us so much that you gave it to us. We thank you that you want us to know you. And we thank you that you have given us um, this invitation uh, to know uh, the sweetness and the fullness and the satisfaction of being known in all of our sinfulness and flawedness. And yet love because of your work and your life, your death on the cross and your resurrection. And Lord, I pray uh, we come into this room in a multitude of ways. Some of us are really discouraged and find ourselves anxious and depressed. And Lord, I pray that you would come and be the comforter to us. And some of us come in this room and we, whether we know it or not, are proud and puffed up and full of ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you would be the one who is the great convictor, the one who comes into our lives and humbles us that we might know more of you and more of your grace and know you truly in ourselves rightly. Lord, however it is that we come, we pray that you would comfort the afflicted and we pray that you would afflict the comfortable. We pray that you would do a work that you alone can do in us and in our midst. And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So three things I want to talk about from John 7. First, in this invitation that Jesus gives and this kind of staggering claim, I want to talk first about who Jesus invites. Uh, Second, I want to talk about what he offers. And the last thing I want to talk about is why it's different than what the world offers. Uh, Who he invites, uh, what he offers, and why it's different than what the world offers. So first, I think we can fear a little bit. My phone is messing up, so we're going to really dive into this thing. Could be be dicey. First, who he invites, if I can get it loaded. There we go. There we go. Uh, so to understand the context of what Jesus is, is doing here, we have to understand this Jewish tradition called the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this was basically a time in Jewish tradition that was a time of incredible celebration, especially a celebration of the harvest of barley and olives and grapes. It was essentially, if you could boil it down, a time where they were remembering God's faithfulness 
and goodness to them, his covenant people. And they were celebrating it. They were celebrating his goodness to them in the wilderness. They were celebrating his goodness at sending the rain to make the crops grow. His covenant faithfulness and his common grace. And so every morning, this is what you have to see. This is the radical thing that Jesus does here. Is that every morning at this, at this basically the last day of this festival, this feast of tabernacles, a priest would lead a procession of people down to the pool of Siloam. And he would fill a golden pitcher with water and he would return to the temple uh, when the morning sacrifice was offered. And the water was poured out into a basin right next to the altar. And as that moment happened, the temple choir would start to sing basically Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. And this whole kind of ordeal came to be associated with the longing and and the coming of the Messiah. And this is the moment, so if you can envision yourself, you're in this place, the priest has just poured this water, they've just sung Psalm 113 through 118, they're longing for the Messiah, and this is the moment where Jesus, as he's gathered there, shouts to them, anyone who thirsts, come to me, I'm that promised Messiah. It's no mistake that Jesus does this in the last day of the festival, and it's no mistake that he says this in this exact moment. Jesus is, in fact, taking on himself, if you know that sweet promise from Isaiah 55, uh, verses 1 to 2, he's taking that promise on his lips where God's prophet Isaiah said it like this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? And this is Jesus taking this promise and he's saying, this is about me. I'm that promised Messiah and I'm inviting you. Who does he invite though? He invites, here's the thing we have to get. He invites anyone who thirsts. In other words, he invites anyone who sees their need for a savior. He invites anyone who is sick of themselves. He he invites anyone who is dissatisfied with the way that they've been doing life and the ways that we all look to and buy from and try to buy things that do bread that does not satisfy, wine that does not fill us, idols that do not serve us or fulfill us in any kind of way. And Jesus is saying, this is I've come to 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 satisfy you. I've come to meet this deep need that you have and that you're longing for. Um, and I think that's the first thing to get is that he invites anyone. I think one of the most beautiful things to me about the gospel and about Christianity is it's not limited to a region. It's not limited to a race. It doesn't require you to be born into a certain kind of a family or wear a certain kind of clothes or behave in a certain kind of way. It literally is for anyone who knows their need, feels their sin, feels their thirst. And this means there's one condition that you must, that you must come in. And that's that you must be thirsty. In other words, you must know what Jesus says to the church in Revelation 3.17. Blessed are the wretched the pitiful, the poor, the blind, and the naked, because those are the ones that I've come for. This is the radical thing. We said this two weeks ago. The radical thing about Christianity is the thing I think sometimes that we mistake it for is you come correct, right? You come presentable. You come complete. You come ready. You come on fire. You come in a certain way. And Jesus is saying, no. He's saying, in my kingdom, the proud and the puffed up and the full of themselves are out. And those who are broken and know their sin and know their need and know their thirst are in. 
Uh, one of my favorite uh, kind of illustrations to get at this, there's a movie that Robin Williams, I think a lot about Robin Williams over the holidays because I think about those of us who carry the burden of depression and I think about how sad. Robin Williams was such an important comedian and actor kind of in my childhood. Mrs. Doubtfire helped me process my parents' divorce in this weird way. But I think about there's this movie in the 90s he did that was one of Robin Williams' first serious roles called The Fisher King. And Robin Williams basically plays, uh, there are two characters, Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams that are central. Jeff Bridges plays this kind of radio, kind of um, shock jock host. And in this moment of what he thinks is really funny, uh, you know, radio material, he starts egging on this guy that he should really take his revenge out on the people who have spurned him. And what happens in the movie is this guy who listens to Jeff Bridges' radio host character goes and shoots up this restaurant, and in that restaurant were Robin Williams and his wife, and Robin Williams' character, his wife, dies, and Robin Williams begins to struggle with all kinds of things, addiction, homelessness, and as Jeff Bridges gets fired because of this moment from his job, in this real serendipitous moment, Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams meet as Robin Williams is homeless and kind of going crazy. They meet on the street, and Robin Williams in this movie, The Fisher King, has become obsessed with this story about the Holy Grail. And here's how he, the film tells it. He, he says to Jeff Bridges, he says, Did you ever hear the story of the Fisher King? It begins when the king is a boy having to spend the night alone in a forest so he could become the king. And while he's sin- spending the night alone, he's visited by a sacred vision. Out of the fire appears this Holy Grail. It's a symbol of God's divine grace. And a voice said to the boy, You shall be keeper of the Grail so that it may heal the hearts of men. But the boy, like us, was blinded by greater visions of a life filled with power, glory, and beauty. And in his state of radical amazement, he felt for a brief moment, not like a boy, but invincible, a god. And so he reached in the fire to take the grail, and the grail vanished, leaving him with his hand in the fire to be terribly wounded. Now as this boy grew grew older, his wound grew deeper. Until one day, life for him lost its reason. I love the way Robin Williams says this. He had no faith in any man, not even himself. He couldn't love or feel loved. He was sick. I love this line. He was sick with experience. And he began to die. One day, a fool wandered into the castle and found the king alone. Now, being a fool, he was simple-minded. And he didn't see a king He only saw a man alone and in pain. And he asked the king, what ails you, friend? And so the the king replied, I'm thirsty and I need some water to cool my throat. And so the fool took a cup from beside his bed and filled it with water and he handed it to the king. And as the king began to drink, he realized that his wound was healed. And he looked at his hands and there, there was the Holy Grail. That which he had sought his whole life. He turned to the fool and said with amazement, How could you find that which my brightest and bravest could not? And the fool replied, I don't know. I only knew that you were thirsty. And I love this because I think this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Do you know that you're thirsty? Because if you do, you're in just the place of being ready to receive the fullness of Jesus. And if you don't yet realize your thirstiness, you're not ready. You're not ready for the fullness that Jesus has for you. That's why we sing, one of my favorite hymns that we sing is, Come ye sinners, 
And I love that line. I say it all the time. I love that line because I think this is so radical to what we think Christianity is and what we think the gospel is. We sing that line, what is the only fitness that Jesus requires? And we sing in that hymn, the only fitness he requires is what? To feel your need for him. In other words, to to feel your sinfulness, to feel your brokenness, to feel not your own fireness, to not feel your strength, to not feel your resume of spiritual maturity, but to feel in, in, in some way, even small, your own brokenness and your need for Jesus. And sometimes, let me say this for some of you, sometimes this means, this can sometimes simply mean, especially if you're not yet sure of what to do with Jesus, this often means that you're just tired of doing life in the same way you've been doing it. In other words, some of you come tonight and you know you're here because you know at some level you're sick and tired of the way life has gone for you and the things you've put your hope and trust in and the things you've looked to to satisfy you and you're not satisfied and you are beginning to admit that to yourself through reasons internal or external. Sometimes it's a breakup. Sometimes it's depression. Sometimes it's anxiety. Sometimes it's crushing loneliness. Sometimes it's failing out of school. Sometimes it's things happening in your family, but you're beginning to admit, maybe I'm not as strong as I thought. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought. Maybe I'm not as true as I thought. And I want to say this, I want to say this to you. Welcome. Because Jesus stands ready to meet you in this place. Jesus says the only people welcome into my kingdom are those who know their thirst. Who know that the pleasures of this world don't satisfy and who know they can't do life in their own terms. It doesn't satisfy and to be looking beyond yourself to him. That's the beginning place. I think often of there's that line from Marie Antoinette's life. You remember, you know, Marie Antoinette, she was French royalty. She had the most in history, some of the most incredible parties ever thrown with the richest food the most incredible drink, the most high-end fashion of all high-end fashion with the who's who of all of Europe. And at the end of it, towards the, toward the end of her life, she had that, that line that she would say, she came to her senses, she said, nothing tastes. Nothing tastes. I've had it all. And nothing tastes. And I want to say to you, that is the beginning place with Jesus. That's who he invites. Those who know that nothing tastes and they are desperately thirsty And he says, come to me. I'm the one who can quench your thirst. So first, who he invites. Second, what he offers. Jesus says, basically, as you come to him and drink, something incredible begins to happen. He says it in this passage that out of his or her heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. It's an image that I think as a culture we are desperate for. Like, I mean, just when I wake up in the morning and I scroll through Facebook I mean, I have my, I don't know what your routine is. Mine is typically Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and then I go back. Then I'll do time hop, see if I tweeted anything good three years ago. Then I'll come back to Twitter. Then I'll go Instagram, Facebook. And as I do that sort of liturgy, literally, multiple times throughout the day, sometimes if you're like me, some of the news is pretty crushing. And I think as a culture, I don't know how y'all relate to this. At 38, I know it's different for me than it probably is for you. But in some ways, it's got to be similar where the news sometimes of the world can be crushing and confusing. And at least we can say, as a culture, we are so polarized. We don't know how to love beyond our tribes. We don't know even, I don't know what Thanksgiving was like for you, but like the awkwardness of politics kind of popped up at our table. And I tried to joke my way out of it, and it was clear that wasn't going to work. Like my parents, my stepdad and my mom were clearly quiet and, and upset. 
My sister thought it was hilarious. My brother-in-law was trying to make peace and I was just sort of not knowing what to do. And that's how it went for me. Don't know what yours was like. But I think what we're all, we can admit what we're all longing for is what Jesus promises here is that we could be people to each other and to the world who are full of life and flourishing and nourishing and enriching. And Jesus is saying, if you come to me, I'm going to begin to do that in you. In fact, one of the ways you know you belong to me is your, the love and the fruit of the spirit that I am doing in you and building in you is going to flow out into your life. And into the lives of others around you, into the lives of your family, into the lives of your roommates, into the lives of your friends, into the lives of the people around you. Jesus is drawing here from Ezekiel 47.5. Here's the way Ezekiel envisioned it. If you know Ezekiel, it's kind of like Revelation, which we went through last spring, where God is giving this vision to his prophet Ezekiel. And here's part of the vision he gives in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel says, again, he measured a thousand And it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. And it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters to the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, uh, for the for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food and their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food. And this is the key, their leaves for healing. And Jesus is saying, when you come and drink from me and when you come and and let me quench your thirst, this is what I'm going to make in you. By my spirit, I'm going to build you into my likeness, and I'm going to bring nourishing and healing all around you. What does it mean for your heart to, to for, from out of your heart, living water to flow? It means four things. Here they are. Here's the first. This means that you will feel full in ways that you've never felt before. Uh, the answer for us when we're feeling empty, or when we're feeling dry, or we're feeling kind of just bleh, isn't to turn to the things we normally turn to. It's not to turn to the pleasures of this world, to turn to our phones, the images in our phones, or to turn to you know, food or drink or whatever things that we turn to. It's to go to Jesus. And that he's the one who can turn our hearts from a desert into an oasis. Now, we us knows this. Part of us knows if you belong to Jesus, you know this. And I'm not trying to say to you, just stop it. But I am trying to say, but don't, don't you see how empty your idols leave you? That's why Isaiah put it a different way. He said when, when he was bemoaning God's people, he said, we're like those of us who go to these broken cisterns and we try to fill them up, these, these cracked jars with water. And we know they're leaking and they're leaking and they're not going to satisfy us. And yet we're still stubborn. And we refuse to go to the only one who can quench our thirst. 
So first, you'll, you'll feel full in ways you've never felt before. Second, you'll go from being a drain to a fountain. You'll go from being a drain to a fountain. Here's what I mean. You'll no longer be the person who looks to others' approval to make you happy. You'll no longer be the person who needs people like a tick needs a dog to draw life from. You'll no longer be that person who is just desperate and spreading your, your, your sucking, sucking, sucking like a black hole. That when Jesus begins to build this, this, quench, this quenching your thirst in you, you'll begin to be a blessing in the lives of others. You'll pursue friendship for the sake of friendship, free from selfish agenda. Yeah, people will feel refreshed after hanging out with you, after grabbing coffee with you at IMAC. Why? Because your refreshment is coming from Jesus and he's always with you and he's always for you. Third, things will begin to grow in the banks of your life that haven't grown there before. Uh, namely, we could say the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Your love for Jesus will grow. I think this, if I could say one thing, there's that scene in Narnia. I use this all the time, so forgive me if you've heard it before. But there's that scene in the second book, Pr- Prince Caspian. Do I have Narnia fans in here? Is that Prince Caspian? Thanks. Thanks for that affirmation. I needed that for a second. Uh, there's that scene where, if you remember the story, Aslan isn't anywhere to be found. And then Lucy, especially the youngest child, is, is longing to meet, to see Aslan, to meet him again. And there's, there's that scene where he shows up at the end of the book. Do you remember the scene? And basically, Lucy has this great line where she says, Aslan, you've grown. And he has that beautiful reply where he says, no, Lucy, every year that you press in with me, I will seem bigger. But it's because you're growing. And I think that, that's the heartbeat of Christianity. Is if Jesus today, whenever you became a Christian, for me it was 1996. But I can tell if I'm progressing in this way by how big Jesus seems to me today. Does Jesus seem a, like a bigger savior? And do you see yourself as a bigger sinner than you did when you first came to him? And if, and if, if he doesn't, then I kind of just say you're not growing. You might be growing in self-righteousness. But you're not growing in grace. You're not growing in Jesus. So three, things will begin to grow in your life. In other words, you won't think about yourself as much or how glorious you are. You'll think more about Jesus and how glorious he is as part of how you know it's happening. And then four, I do want to say this for those of you who are more self-critical or more anxious in spirit or just harder on yourself. I do want to say that sometimes those who are most filled with the spirit often don't feel like they are at all. Can I just say to you, sometimes those who are most filled with the Spirit don't feel that necessarily. Partly because they're feeling a keen sense of their own sin, but also because they're maturing in the Christian life. Those who are most filled with the Spirit will most keenly feel their flaws. They'll most keenly feel how undeserving they are. And because they most keenly feel that thirst, that neediness, They'll be the ones who drink most deeply of Jesus. They'll be the ones who treasure Jesus the most. Um, There's a line, Gandhi's famous line, where Gandhi at one point in his life was looking, because I think for a lot of us, this is what we long for, but Gandhi had this great line where he said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians, because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think part of what Jesus is inviting us into is a life that he alone can create in us, which is utter dependence and utter treasuring of him. The point of Christianity isn't us and how good we are or how amazing we're doing, 
The point of Christianity is abiding and loving Jesus more and more, more the day you die than the day you first believed. Last thing I want you to see is why it's different. So first, who he invites. Second, what he offers. He's offering this amazing gift to us. But the second or third thing I want you to see is why it's different. The thing that I think we need to see is the invitation of Jesus isn't to a better life. The invitation of Jesus isn't into doing more for him. The invitation of Jesus isn't about sharing the gospel more. The invitation of Jesus isn't about being a more on fire Christian. The invitation of Jesus is to abide and drink from him. Do you see that? That's a radical difference. I think most, this is why most of your roommates who are, who, who are suspicious of you, like if they know that you're a Christian, they know you're here tonight, maybe you've invited them here tonight. Can I just offer a suggestion? Part of why they're suspicious is because they think what you're inviting them into is to be better. They think what you're inviting them into is just to change their lives overnight and start start on the good track with Jesus. And this is not the invitation of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus is for those who know their brokenness, know their sinfulness, to come to him and be healed. And to come to him and let him lead us in repentance and faith. That's a huge difference. It's not turning from sin, turning to this own fire life with Jesus. It's turning from sin to Jesus who then leads us as he abides with us in his faithful love to being more and more in love and on fire for him. Uh, repentance, in other words, we could say it is, isn't stopping doing bad things and starting doing good things. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is recognizing your thirst and running to Jesus to quench it. And recognizing the places of your broken cisterns and running to, re- confessing that to Jesus and asking him for forgiveness and healing. And Jesus says, come to me and drink. Drink of me. I think most people picture faith as giving something to Jesus. And the picture Jesus gives us here is drinking a tall glass of water when you're dying of thirst. Another way we could say it is you're receiving from his fullness grace upon grace. What Jesus promised in John 1. Remember what John said about Jesus. He was full of truth and of grace. And I love the way that one that John Newton used to say it, more grace than we are of sin. John Newton used to say that there's always more grace in the Lord Jesus than there is sin in you and in me. And Jesus is saying, come drink deeply from my grace and of my life and of my joy. And, and part of what Jesus, what John tells us is that Jesus is offering this in the spirit. He basically says, he works that in, that the Spirit is the one who comes and communicates this to us and, and makes this happen in us. The Spirit's the one who opens our eyes to our thirst. The Spirit's the one who begins to show us what Jesus has done for us, that we, our thirst might be quenched. The Spirit's the one who shows us the beauty of the cross. Part of how you know the Spirit's at work in you is not because you're having amazing experiences. Listen, I've been slain in the Spirit. Carol and I have connected over this. And I wasn't really because I faked it. Because I was so desperate for Jesus to work in me. But the way you know the Spirit's working in your life is you're making more and more and more, especially of the cross. Of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Think about the cross with me for a second. Because there's a scene, if you know the last words of Jesus, there's a scene at the cross that's pretty amazing. Uh, If you know the last words, there's this one scene that's kind of weird where Jesus, he's on the cross and the soldiers are mocking him and Jesus cries out. It's one of his last words. And he cries out, I thirst. I'm thirsty. 
literally in his crucifixion, he was dying of thirst. He was dying of more than that. And remember that scene, the, the soldiers bring this, uh, they dip this stick with a sponge and vinegar, and they, at the end of it, and they, they put it to his lips. And it's hard to know in that scene if they're mocking him, or if they're, what they're doing with him. It feels like mocking. And Jesus dies in thirst. Why? Why does Jesus die in thirst? He dies in thirst that you and I might never be thirsty again. He, he dies in thirst that you and I might know the living waters of what he is accomplishing for us on the cross. Where Jesus, who lived the perfect life, this life of complete sinlessness, which seems so unimaginable to us. No sin in his whole life, and yet he dies in this death, and it's the death that you and I deserve for the ways that we've gone to the broken cisterns over and over and over again. And Jesus dies thirsty that you and I might never be thirsty again. Literally in John 4, our passage we looked at, when, John, when Jesus promises water to the Samaritan woman, there's that line where he says, you will never be thirsty again forever. When you begin to see why Jesus died for you, and what that means, you begin to see what he did for you. Jesus is the only person who knows you, like truly knows all your broken cisternness and loves you. And doesn't just love you verbally. And, and wasn't at the cross just saying, let me show you how much I love you. But at the cross was actually dying for thirsty sinners in thirst that we might drink this water from him the water of his grace, the water of his gospel forever. I'll close with this. There's, you know I'm a movie guy. Got a chance. I had a little, little spell there where I didn't get to see a movie by myself, which was hard, hard on me. Part of why Thanksgiving was hard. But finally got to see Creed 2. Amazing. If you got a chance to see it, go see it. Michael B. Jordan is the GOAT. He's amazing in the movies. Amazing in the first Creed. Maybe even better in Creed 2. But the theme of the film, really from the beginning, is Rocky saying to, to Creed, you know, basically throughout this film, what are you fighting for? And kind of the theme of the film is, as he reached, goes to the heights, wins the heavyweight championship, Creed does, and then if you've seen it or haven't seen it, it's not a spoiler, but he begins, Victor Drago begins to emerge. If you know the Rocky story, uh, Ivan Drago was the one that killed Creed's dad. And then Rocky beats him, and then after Rocky beats him, he and his son basically go into utter just failureness. And so they've been waiting for this opportunity, Drago and his son Victor, to emerge in the scene and, and fight Creed, that they might regain their honor, get some revenge against Rocky. And so it's clear what Victor is fighting for, right? He's fighting to, to re-sort of reclaim the Drago name, restore the, the favor of Russia, and then throughout the movie, as, as Creed sort of begins to get to the top and Drago challenges him, it, it seems clear what Creed is fighting for is similar to the first movie where he seems to be fighting for that moment in the first movie where he says, when Rocky asks him, what are you fighting for? And he says, to prove that I'm not a mistake. And even in Creed 2, throughout most of the movie, that seems to be what he's still fighting for, to prove himself in a way that I'm not a mistake, I am somebody, and it's not working. It doesn't work. It won't spoil the film for you. But then finally, there's a moment for Creed, where he realizes this is what's worth fighting for. And it's his wife, and it's his child, and it's his family, and the movie. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. No spoilers. No spo- I give some spoilers. No other spoilers. But as I'm watching that, here's what I'm thinking. 
Here's the way I thought about it. Jesus knew what he was fighting for. Do you see that? Jesus dies in thirst knowing what he's fighting for. And he's fighting for you and he's fighting for me. He's fighting to be the savior that we need. He's fighting to be the king that we need. He's fighting to be the only God that you and I have ever heard of that loves broken people like you and me. And he's fighting to be the one who alone can satisfy us and who alone can fulfill us and who alone can meet these needs that we carry and we take all kinds of broken places and Jesus is saying, bring them to me and let me quench your thirst. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you, by your spirit, would work in us in a way that you would bring us to yourself, quench our thirst, be the one who meets us in our brokenness and our sinfulness with your grace and with your joy and restores us to our humanity and begins to build in us by life with you, build us more into your likeness, that we might overflow with this living water you promised us and that we might begin to nourish and flourish, not just each other, but the world around us. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the doxology.